0: Oftentimes enlightening and informative And above all else, deeply human Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take My guest is David Gessner His new book is Leave It As It Is, A Journey Through Theodore Roosevelt's American Wilderness Leave It As It Is, Theodore Roosevelt announced While viewing the Grand Canyon for the first time The ages have been at work on it And man can only mar it Roosevelt's rallying cry signaled the beginning of an environmental fight That still wages today To reconnect with the American wilderness and with the president who courageously protected it, acclaimed nature writer and New York Times best-selling author David Gessner embarks on a great American road trip guided by Roosevelt's crusading environmental legacy. It's a great book, and we had a great conversation about it. I give you David Gessner. David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Scott. It's great to have you on here. And it's interesting how books, I think, develop in timely ways. And so you've written um, this wonderful book, Leave It As It Is, A Journey Through Theodore Roosevelt's American Wilderness. I'm sure you had no idea when you're working on this book that we'd be in a pandemic where it'd be tough to promote it. And at the same time, we'd be at a time of racial unrest and kind of... You know, just churning as a country, where actually Teddy Roosevelt's statue was removed from that in the Natural History Museum. Was that a, sh- a, sh- a shock to you when that decision was made?
1: I planned it out in advance that so I would have it taken.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the entrails of an owl, right? You're looking and they said. <laughs> I,
1: I said to a writer friend whose book, whose wonderful book called The Roomy Prescription, Melody Moisey, came out like the week we started sheltering in place. You know, it was the worst possible timing. And I said to her this morning, it's either the best time or the worst time to have the Teddy Roosevelt book coming out right now. And, you know, I meant it in terms of um, he's there's, threatened, there's canceling of him threatened, but he's got so many good qualities to go with his deep flaws that it's tough to do. But the statue coming down is fascinating. It's like he didn't like statues. He would have agreed with it coming down of what it represents and yet you know i i've, I've written a couple of pieces where i say don't take teddy down along with the statue because there's you know so much he can offer us in exactly what you were saying in these chaotic times uh as a leader he could offer us and in terms of some of his deeper better beliefs
0: i'm so struck just now how you said don't yeah you know, i'm hoping he doesn't get canceled but it's funny how language works and how language becomes something like you know not long ago, that wouldn't have if if I if we had been talking about this and I'd said and I said something like Teddy Roosevelt is going to get canceled. I mean, you'd be like, what? This, was this a, a sort of serial drama on the History Channel or what? I mean, that it's <laughs> it's interesting how that now has become a term that like, and I know what you mean. Yeah. You know that yeah. this is so, so pre, predominant in our cultural imagination, right? And it's happened like, I mean, as a writer, this must fascinate you, and as, as somebody who teaches creative writing. Studying how these words take up a life of their own, right?
1: Yeah, you could also do a you could do kind of moving stream biography of what he has meant at different times, like how he's evolved and how he's been uh used by different people and used I don't mean used in the most crass sense, but used in the better sense. I mean, he was the model for FDR when he came into the White House. FDR's new deal was based on a square deal. I say to people who think of Roosevelt as, you know, conservative, I'm like he, his final platform for Bull Moose would have made Bernie blush. I mean, it's so left and it's so anticipated FDR. Then flip it around and you have Nixon quoting the man in the arena speech as he's leaving office. So, you, you know, it, it's coming from all sides and you have the Kennedys throwing the football around on the lawn and trying to create this atmosphere of vigor. That is all Roosevelt, you know, so there, it's fascinating to see how he's been kind of used. And now he's coming into scary times for him because we are in a you know a country where we zone in on these flaws and there's no question the man was flawed. Now, the, uh, the question is, in all his messy, energetic complexity, did he do go- more good than bad? And in terms of the cancel question, what I would say is a simple test. How would you have done then? And how would that person do now? And a couple of Roosevelt's, I can get more specific later, but a couple of his worst qualities um, are ones that I don't think would exist now just because he was such an avid reader and such a thinker about what was going on. He just didn't have the advantage of, of our times, basically, or the disadvantage of our times also. So,
0: Yeah, I remember Bill Maher uh, during the Democratic primary process talking about Kamala Harris and the fact that she had changed her views on consumption of marijuana and these sort of things from when she was a prosecutor. And there are political reasons and there are probably just cultural reasons. right? And he was saying, get over it. People evolve. I'm glad she evolved. I'm glad she changed her mind. And he was just talking about how we look back at, you know, people in previous generations and think, oh, I can't believe that what popular wisdom was and in subsequent generations, if we're not living in, I have friends right now that are in Maricopa County in Arizona and they're, they're just telling me that we're extras in a dystopian film. So, assuming that we do have a f- subsequent generations coming, that we don't have the uh, the mega virus that, that creates Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome and <laughs> or something right. like that, we're going to be laughed at for some of our or are we are some of our kind of views on race and science and culture and gender are going to seem quaint or some or sometimes just downright misguided and wrong, right? So, I mean, that's. It, that's part of being a, a historical figure, right? Being able to yeah. to look at, or being historical people, being able to look at, like, we're in, caught in a place and time. And in that situate, situates us in ways that we can't escape. And so is he situated in ways he couldn't escape, right?
1: Right, right. and one thing that he can't escape, too, is he has certain Trumpian overtones. He has um, Manhattan-born, uh, silver spoon-in-the-mouth, um, small hands. He actually had, he was criticized for having small hands, <laughs> Um, he, so, you know, and obviously kind of a bullying at times, America first personality, but what he, what he compensates with is this growing sense of empathy, this, um, this kind of, uh, love of science, which really comes through, you know, when he's a teenager and when he actually starts when he's about 12, he doesn't want to be a politician when he grows up. He doesn't want to be a soldier. He wants to be a naturalist. And I think one of the interesting things about the taking down of the statue is the Natural History Museum is compensating by renaming its Hall of Biodiversity after him, which makes total sense. Because even as a writer, he developed because he was into birds and because he was into animals. And as I say in the book, you can fault him for certain prejudices, but you can't fault him for being anthropocentric. You can't fault him for only seeing man or or humans. He sees beyond that and that's what to me is so exciting. You know, I my background is kind of as a naturalist nature writer and so to see the president of the United States, you know, going camping with John Muir and and you know, trying to save not just land for humans, but land for grizzlies and for big carnivores and it, to me that's the really exciting
0: part. Uh, something struck me as I was reading through your book that Roosevelt may be a man for our times, and also this sense. And I want to get into the specifics of this, but I, a little bit. But just generally, here he's a guy that's so self conscious of who he is and developing himself. And evolving himself, and considering his limitations, especially physically as a young boy, and in, 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 in the asthma, and his father wanting him to be a kind of more muscular, religious, and spiritual person, and things. I, and I, I, I think about how right now in the, the the maybe the, I mean the dark side of this is can, the cancel culture, right? But maybe the brighter side of this is we're asking these deep questions of who we want to be, mm-hmm. and how we want to, and who, how we want to be who and how we want to be. And that seems like that was Roosevelt's bread and butter. Th- th- these kind of basic questions of who am I and how do I get there? And he kind of has a way of constructing his identity that doesn't seem completely shallowly curated uh, the way we think of it to, you know, today with Instagram and stuff like this. He's actually on a journey and it, it might make him a new kind of figure for times. Cause as a country, it seems like we're on a journey right now.
1: Yeah. I, I love what you're saying. It's to me, um, there's a whole self-help element to Roosevelt too, but in a deeper sense, in a William James kind of sense, you know, William James talked about how, um, you know, will may or may not exist the concept of will, but we might as well act as if it does, because it seems to exist. And there's no question that, TR believed in will, and he believed he was willing himself, not just with his physical body, but in, in other areas like learning courage. And he always defined himself, and he does this in his autobiography, as not a genius, not a, you know, uh, even though he had a photographic memory and read a book a night at one point, but he to, he doesn't define himself as a genius, but as an effortful trier, you know, somebody who's always going to try harder. So there's a little Rocky Balboa there to, you know, to it. And I, I think one of the reasons uh, he's so exciting, if you go back, um, sadly, Edmund Morris, the biographer, his great biographer died last year, um, about a year ago. And if you go back and read those parts about when Roosevelt leaves the East after his wife and mother has died and goes out to the, to the Badlands, And, you know, and just kind of rebuilds himself and re-envisions himself. It's extraordinary. Um, Just one self-conscious note, you know, I don't define myself. I'm in no way on par with Edmund Morris or biographers. You know, I think of myself as like kind of a biographical adventurer. And part of that adventure is reading all the biographies. And I would put Edmund Morris's, you know, trilogy about Roosevelt up there with with any biographies. It's just, you know, because it does the thing that great biographies do. Which it has the ability that you were just talking about to change your life. I mean, it, it, you're reading it and you're going, "Oh my God, he did that. Maybe I can do this on a much smaller scale. I'm not going to be president and you know, and a rancher, but I, you know." So, so it's infectious, is what I, I guess I'm trying to say.
0: Yeah, this is what I was thinking when I was reading your book because you quote popular historians like David McCullough and. much more academic sort of professional historians who are who are eye high in presidential biography right and i'm i'm wondering is this like just like teddy roosevelt has some insecurities about his health and his own development i mean is a writer is that an insecure pool to wait in because you're a creative writer you're chair of the creative writing department at university of north carolina wilmington right but but you're not I mean, you're not a presidential historian. You're, that's not, you're not a professional person that's digging through archives and stuff. So I'm wondering, is this a, a tough pool to jump into? I mean, how was that for you?
1: I didn't really think about it that way. Um, my, Like you said, my background is not in history or biography. I actually used, um, I've actually, i written a couple of books about ospreys and birds and, and traveling and nature. And I went down to the Gulf during the oil spill and wrote a book called The Tarball Crown. But a real formative thing for me was that
0: was that heartbreaking was that heartbreaking looking at those birds and those animals covered in oil. It it
1: was, and and it also, you know, when I went down there, I just jumped in my car and drove down, and everybody told me they're not going to let you see anything, they're not going to give you access, they're not going to talk to you. Totally false. Everybody there was welcoming. You know, I people brought me to the shore. There was it, it was one of the times where and this, Roosevelt does this too, the overlap of conservative and liberal because of the concern for the place was, it was so different than like, you know, learning about the world from MSNBC and Fox. It was, it was, the, my main character in that book was a big conservative hunting guide who was a tough guy and referred to Obama as my president, but he was heartbroken too when he looked at the oiled birds and the and the oiled waters in the Gulf. So yeah, and, but to get back to the, question about biography, um, a big formative thing for me was when I was in college, I had a professor named Walter Jackson Bate who wrote biographies of Samuel Johnson and John Keats, both of which won Pulitzer Prizes and National Book Awards, a crazy load of trophies. But the main thing about them was he said, uh, paraphrasing Johnson, the real push of biography is what we can put to use in our lives. So. Similar to the answer I gave you before, my drive with Roosevelt was personal. I want to become, after years of writing about nature, more of an activist, more of a fighter. And it was very selfish. I went to him as a model. I have no problem leaning on better scholars than I am. But my goal is to create an exciting adventure. and It's partly an adventure of transformation, of me looking at this guy and asking, what would he do right now? I think I make a little list at the beginning of the book, like which one is like, Drink lots of coffee. Get in fights. You know, be opinionated. <laughs> I you know, love your list. You know, and just kind of like, all right, that's why I need Teddy right now because I need to be more like that in this day and age when the environmental fight is so crucial. You know, it's at this moment, and we're all distracted by all the other stuff, and we're forgetting that the, the world is getting trashed. So, I put I, 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 the pandemic though. Yeah
0: the pandemic just directly connected right in the sense directly of
1: directly connected in fact I mean, the title of the it, book c-
0: climate change it, climate change right is going to lead to more pandemics because the ecosystems get stressed and then th- things like blur together and boundaries get crossed and things get messy and you get more things like this i mean it's not it's going to get a lot
1: worse not well, better. Well, it comes from tearing up the world, too. So the title of the book, Leave It As It Is, is exactly, you know, that applies to bats as well as to forests. You know, it's like you if, if you're going to be tearing things up, microbes like dust rise, as you know David Quammen said in his book about pandemics that kind of called this one exactly. And we, you know, the, the whole idea of leaving things alone is so foreign to us <laughs> that uh, so, so, yeah, so for me, biography, I didn't feel intimidated. I felt um, happy to quote and refer to the real biographers. And for me, biography had a use. And, you know, as you know, it was only a third of the book that's biography, kind of weaving three things together uh, the road trip and my larger environmental thoughts. And I really like having multiple things going on, you know, cutting back and forth from them because it stimulates me. And I have a, professor in Colorado who was in grad school. His name is Red Sonner, a great uh, Western writer. And he used to talk about the pleasures of the difficult. And I like, you know, it's more fun to work on something hard than it is on something easy, which is a Rooseveltian uh, kind of uh, sentiment, of course. Right? He liked- it's interesting
0: you say that too, because it, it strikes me that your writing style is a lot more like life, right? That, that we don't we experience our lives like you have this beautiful moving trip with your nephew uh, Noah, right? You're you're driving, you know, from from the south up to DC, across to the Badlands, and, and it's so interesting. And you're thinking about your own environmental stuff, and you're thinking about Roosevelt. This is how we live our lives, right? We don't say, well. Tuesday, Wednesday, we're going to think about Roosevelt. Thursday, Friday, it's going to be family types. I mean, we, we we live our lives in the kind of integrated stream in which a book like yours flows, right? So, I mean, in some sense, if we're going to live toward human flourishing, it's probably going to be going to look like the way you're writing, right? These these things are going to be, and so it's it's almost like you're kind of documenting your own
1: journey to flourishing. Yeah, yeah, and, and uh, with hypocrisy and messiness included. So, that, something that
0: struck me. So you have you have this you have this quote early on in the book. Um, it, it, this is um, I think his father saying to him, Theodore, you have the mind, but you have not the body, and without the help of the body, the mind cannot go as far as it should. You must make your body. It is hard drudgery to make one's body, but I know you'll do it. As I was reading that, I was thinking of I don't know if Roosevelt had ever read Nietzsche, but when I. So there, I think there's this crass view of Nietzsche that when he talks about the Ubermensch or the Superman, it's a some fascist dictator or something. No, I think Nietzsche is thinking exactly of Theodore Roosevelt, right? Somebody that leans into their challenges. I mean, Nietzsche said somewhere it's in the Gay Science. He says that the most important thing one can do is develop a, a personal sense of style, and he means existentially: Who am I going to be? And it seems to me like like there's this existential lens on Roosevelt, right? That, that he, he's this guy that like is determined to, to suck the marrow out of the bones of life. And really is, 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 is looking at his life like a canvas uh, and trying to work it out. I mean, and I just thought, man, I I jotted down this note, like, did he read Nietzsche? <laughs> Which is pretty unlikely, right? Because I, my guess is that stuff was not translated at the time. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah. The time, you know, it, I don't it, think, it's contemporary stuff. Yeah, I don't think the timing works out, but he, he, um, he lived him he didn't he might not he didn't read him but he lived him and it's you know when his doctor told him when he was 18 or 19 you know you've got to take it easy you know you've got these health issues this heart issue and he was like screw that i'm going i'm pedal to the metal the whole way and you talk about a personal style it was a you know it's no exagger- it's no surprise that a lot of contemporary writers compared him to a steam engine you know, it was like it was go 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 i hadn't known that he basically drank coffee from the moment he woke up until he went to sleep and uh morris says he would even go to sleep energetically you <laughs> know it's like he he and so there was this kind of push and now this is like
0: the op- this is like the opposite of churchill right mm-hmm. who's drinking gin from the time he gets yeah. up the time he goes to bed so well, so though there are some similarities
1: there're some similarities in the in the, in the um, all massive self-confidence, you know, in, in the two men and also the ability to be better, like the Ubermensch sort of thing, to do more than most people, but also to be able to communicate with almost anyone, including, you know, the ranch hands. The, uh, and being, shockingly, a great listener for a monologist who loved to talk and go on and on and on. Uh, he could also just sit there and just really listen, and that that was pretty impressive. And there were a couple examples of his um, ability to listen really changing him. Like when he was the New York uh, Police Commissioner, and he went and you know, went into all the neighborhoods in New York and was um, with, with Jacob Rees, who wrote "How the Other Half Lives," and he found out how the other half lived, and it changed him and it changed his policies. So it's pretty it's pretty extraordinary to um, you know. We can sit back and criticize him, but you can't fault him for lack of effort or lack of energy. And um, and that's pretty exciting for me. You know, a lot of us feel overwhelmed by our lives. And this is a guy who kind of fought back against that feeling of overwhelm and and, and proceeded with, with great and exciting confidence.
0: And I'm struck by, I think of like people like George H.W. Bush, right? You're running for president. I mean, I, 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 the second half of the 20th century – I think, and this isn't a partisan statement or anything, whether you like his politics or not, you just, you look at Bush's resume, and it was probably the best presidential resume. You know, he was successful in business. He was a congressman. He was ambassador to the UN. He was CAA director. He was vice president. I mean, you look at his resume compared to Roosevelt's. He looks like an intern. I mean, I mean, this guy is police commissioner. He's assistant secretary of the navy he writes a a book about the navy like i can't imagine sitting there just going okay i'm going to write a book about the navy yeah. uh, and becomes a naval expert becomes you know uh, governor becomes vice president becomes president and still can function and just go a, slip his a secret service detail go out with Muir and all the you know yeah. i mean the, just the sheer capacity of this guy yeah. to function well, he's writing, he's so writing many
1: 45 time. books, you know, like while he's doing all the rest of this stuff. When he's down in Cuba, you know, for his charge with the Rough Riders, he's also studying vultures and the ornithological you know, implications of the vulture diet. So he's so multifaceted in that way. And um, I mean, one of my favorite scenes, which Edmund Morris writes about, is he's chasing the boat thieves, you know, on the little Missouri, the frozen river with his two ranch hands, and he's brought along Anna Karenina, which he's reading in the back, because he's, you know, he's like the definition of multitasking in that way, you know, where he, and he had the ability to be absorbed, so here he is about to arrest these boat thieves, and he's he's whipping through the novel, um, it's kind of it's kind of nuts, really.
0: When you talk with your colleagues, right, at the university, and they're asking, what are you working on? And you say, well, I'm working on this kind of interesting existential book where I'm like talking a little about my journey with my nephew, my own naturalist stuff, and Teddy Roosevelt. Like, how do they react? I mean, is there is there, again, we're in the age of cancel culture, like, why would you write on Teddy Roosevelt or that kind of thing?
1: Yeah, there's a little of that. I would say not as much with my colleagues as my grad students, where... Um, I was working on it while I was teaching a grad class called Beyond Memoir, where we were talking about adding some personal reporting to your personal story to bolster it. And you know, it's a little bit of a hard sell. Um, graduate programs in creative writing are basically the temple of the woke. And why are you dragging this this guy into the picture? And I think what I I think that was actually helpful writing the book. Um, there are a couple reasons. Um, I was happy to be kind of on alert. My grad students did that. And obviously, as I'm sure we'll talk about, the fact that I was dealing a lot with Navajo culture and American Indian culture, Native American culture, and that is a complicated mix with Roosevelt. So, you know, I think it was good to go in with that awareness. And yes, they were rolling their eyes, wondering why I was dredging up Teddy um, in this day and age. Um, But as I point out in the book, it had a pretty organic origin. I had spent a lot of time when I was younger in the parts of Southeast Utah that Bears Ears National Monument is in. I loved that area. I lived in Colorado um, when I was in my 30s. And what happened was I was the token Easterner in an anthology of writing about Bears Ears that was presented to all the members of Congress. And presented ultimately to Obama. And when Obama declared Bears Ears National Monument, uh, a national monument on his way out of office in 2016 in December, it was the most personally like impacted by a political thing I've ever felt. And how I felt was minor compared to how the five tribes who had drafted the original proposal felt and how many people in Utah felt. So, Almost a year later, on October 27th, when Ryan Zinke, the then Secretary of the Interior, who called himself a Roosevelt Republican, when he announced in front of a portrait of Roosevelt in the White House and on Roosevelt's birthday, when he announced that they were going to reduce Bears Ears by 85 percent. It was devastating. And I was pissed off. And I'd already been starting to research Roosevelt, but that was the moment I knew this is a book. So I headed out in January and did an initial scouting kind of mission. I talked to Regina Lopez Whiteskunk, who was one of the original tribal members. And, you know, I was wary of bringing up Roosevelt's name. His track record on Native American issues was was bad. And I say that outright in the book. I don't try to make excuses for it. But what excited me right from the get-go was the idea that we could take these old ideals, like the National Park ideal, and National Monument ideal, you know, what Wallace Stegner called America's best idea, and make them better by uniting them with nativeites. And that is exactly what the Bears Ears Commission was trying to do. And it was so exciting and so kind of idealistic that to see it crushed by, you know, by Trump and Z- and Zinke, who didn't even know what they were talking about there, to see it, um, the Antiquities Act threatened. Um really enraged me, but also fired me up. So that's what led to the summer long trip. So it grew out of that. And I think when I talked to my colleagues about that, they understood where it was coming from. It wasn't just, oh, I'm going to write another biography of somebody who has had 64 biographies written. (laughs) Sorry,
0: that was a that's long answer. I think about like, well, it was a great answer. It was a fantastic answer. But I was, as you were talking, first of all, I was thinking, I don't know if you're on Twitter, but you should right now, if you are, you should tweet out creative writing departments are the temple, it, it, are the temple of the woke. Because that's like so, like you would be, that would go viral because it's, it's such a great description. And it's great because you live in them. It's sort of, it's not ju- judgmental or prescriptive. It's just like, you're like, hey, it's a rat i think about something like roosevelt's complicated relationship with native americans indigenous american peoples and stuff and i wonder like is there some kind of analogy where i mean i i wonder what our relationship 100 years from now will be like with islam like with with islamic cultures in the middle east we, you know, we have some run up to 9-11 where for decades we're in these weird, like, we're putting military base in Saudi Arabia and things like this. And it, we don't really understand the culture, we don't understand the context. 9-11 happens, Islamophobia ratchets up. I mean, we, we, we're we still in this place where I think we have this really um, reactive, less than reflective understanding. I wonder if there's something similar going on. And results are, you just don't know what's, like you know, you're kind of pushing West. Expansion-wise, you know, you, you, people are, are are exploring the possibilities of this massive country, the country that's got massive land mass, massive natural resource accumulation all over the place, and you've got this reality here that you don't understand. And like I, you I know, mean, like I mean, that's I mean, I, I feel like there's like a sympathy you have you can have with Roosevelt because he's one of the smartest people alive at the time and loves the land and has such so much in common with kind of indigenous American kind of sensibilities around the land. And yet he's a person of his time. And this is a phenomenon that's hard to figure out, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, as I said in the book, and as I said earlier, um, there are areas a usual biographer's trick is to bring up something negative and then kind of justify it. And I said, in terms of Native American um, attitudes, I don't want to do that. I want to leave it as it is, no pun intended. <laughs> and, but there is truth to the fact that the native american members of the rough riders that more and more he explored the west and the culture he never got out of his time and to be perfectly frank in terms of manifest destiny he was actually behind his time i mean because by by you know this was something that had been going on for decades and it was tied to the fact his vision of you know american exceptionalism and you know we we need to be the greatest you know make america great again sort of thing and that that was something that i try not to make an excuse for because it's very much in roosevelt and even though he was one of the smartest people of this time he um his views on on that sort of thing are are, are tough to defend. um and yet as i said earlier i think if you brought him to the other side of world war 2 if you brought him toward the present um, this was a thinking man. This was a, a, a person who could evolve. And I believe that. So, um, uh, you know, for me, the place where he was ahead of his time was in his environmental vision. And it wasn't just, you know, people talk about conservationists, preservationists, but it wasn't just that. It was, you know, for instance, in Yellowstone. He wasn't just looking, even though he said for the enjoyment of the people, he was caring about species other than human. And to me, that's the biggest kind of thinking, you know, to think of, think of a world that doesn't just contain us is, is an impressive... It's the
0: eco-thinking. Eco exactly. It's the ecosystem thinking. And I remember reading a couple of years ago, Ben Franklin was basically writing about how American independence was inevitable because the size of the country and the amount of natural resources we have. And you see, you see even there at this pre-industrial kind of you know colonial thing there's just looking at like you know it's kind of the way in the old Bugs Bunny cartoons uh, or, or remember there's two characters that were always in, in the in the Looney Tunes cartoons yeah uh one was kind of short and fat and one was tall and thin they would look at each other as a hot dog and a hamburger right they would just evolve to see the other. and i think it it, it It's so hard not to look at the resources as dollar signs and expansion, right? And it seems like Roosevelt was ahead of his time in that he was able to see it, like you said, leave
1: it as is. He was able to see it as it was as an
0: ecosystem,
1: and that is remarkable. Yeah, and you know, the uh, it's become an environmental cliche to say for our children's children's children. But when he first said it, it was brilliant because it linked the the future through our blood, through our kids, to the land, and you know, it's that idea of linking. Linking us to the land and really feeling that way, I mean, I just feel like environmental issues are always so far down on the priority list. And we really, you know, any way we can revitalize them, any way we can give a dry, what people consider this dry issue, blood and, and energy. I mean, right now in the District of Columbia, uh, in a district court, they're deciding the fate of the Antiquities Act. Now it'll probably pass up to the Supreme Court, particularly if God help us, Trump gets reelected, but. If the Antiquities Act, which was the, you know, Thor had his hammer and Captain America and his shield and Roosevelt had the Antiquities Act, if that gets taken away, or if a president is allowed to undo something that a previous president done, then all hell breaks loose. Then, then we can lose things we thought were saved forever. And that is the real, like, pernicious... the, the the danger of, of what Trump did with Bears Ears and Grand Staircase Escalante the other um, national monument so this is real stuff happening right now now i understand that we've got a pandemic going on we've got the daily trump show we've got all these other things but the land is still such a defining part of us or it should be <laughs> in our uh, in our uh, kind of our national mirror that we look into. You know, the, the geography of hope is what lost. I'm
0: curious, how did this book change your relationship with your nephew? Because you, you you take him on this road trip as part of you know exploring the story, and you tell some interesting stories. He's a little more introverted than you are. You're listening to audiobooks about Roosevelt. I mean, it sounds. like I mean, what is it? What what's how's the relationship evolved since the finishing of the book?
1: He got better and better at ping pong was a big part of the evolution he um, i could beat him when we started and he could beat me regularly by the end originally in the first draft i had <laughs> i had every one of our like we played ping pong you know in washington dc we played it outside at harvard we played it in the badlands you know we we kept finding ping pong tables and that was one of the ways we expressed our, um, our competitiveness but also our fondness for each other i mean Noah's kind of in, in many situations the grown-up in the room even though you know, I was 57 and he's 21. Uh, he's kind of a stoic, uh, hard to know uh, whether, I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to take him is I went on a trip right after college out West. It was a life-changing trip. And I was like, wow, I can do this to my nephew. But I had to kind of pry out of him the fact that, yes, this is, this is opening me up to things. This is exciting you know, as I say in the book, I even got him to do a little edibles in California. So that that was another evolution. But we've always been very close uh, and uh, we remain close. We'll see if we're still close after he reads the book.
0: <laughs> How do you imagine he'll respond to the book?
1: Quietly. Do <laughs> <laughs> you think he'll like it? Yeah, he'll like it. I mean, he knows... Everybody in my family knows the deal. If you're hanging out with me, there's a chance you're going to end up in the next book. So it's just it's a it's just part of part of having a writer in the family, I guess. And he he
0: kind of knew that and was willing to engage on that level. Like he was okay being featured in the book, right? I mean, this is kind of something where he I mean, I guess he knows you so that he's got to be open to the fact that that's, you know, who you
1: are. Yeah, we're we're good with it, I think. I'll let you know if it turns out otherwise and he gets upset. <laughs> but I don't think he will. I mean, he's, uh, I, I, I thought it was, I thought one good kind of going back to the temple of the woke and the, and anticipating preemptively anticipating certain criticisms about writing about Roosevelt right now. I thought it was good to have a 21 year old who you know was a big, big Lebowski fan and, and rolled his eyes at Roosevelt, having to listen to him in the car while Roosevelt's talking about manly vigor, you know, and, <laughs> uh, and I yeah. was like, what the hell is this? And so it was a good counterpoint. Um, I mean, it really happened. So I'm just a nonfiction writer recording it, but I was happy that it happened in terms of putting Roosevelt in perspective. I mean, it's not, you know, it's not like there are a lot of 21 year olds running around talking about manly vigor or if there are they're probably not very popular. I'm struck by
0: something you said a few minutes ago about the environment and it and us b- as a culture we as a culture basically losing the capacity to focus on it. And, and this thing you point out about Roosevelt he's just able to like think about so many things at once. So he's able to think about foreign policy he's able to think about reform i mean the, i mean this is i mean so much of what we take for granted right and now as 21st century americans about government is from this reform movement that comes when I, mean, I remember you know i uh i remember watching when glenn beck had a show on fox news i i just i it was i used to watch so because it was such great political theater i'm like oh my gosh this guy's just got a chalkboard but he was always lampooning roosevelt right and wonder wasn't like He was always attacking Roosevelt, right? A a Republican who, you know, but so much of of what Roosevelt did and stood for shaped things we take for granted around certain kinds of civic rights and virtues and political procedures. And yet he's able to think about the world, even if we think, okay, some of the things with the Monroe Doctrine and stuff are regressive and we wouldn't think about it that way now. And he probably wouldn't either. But he's able to think about the world, domestic stuff. He's able to think creatively about the Navy and able to sit in out in the open air and and, and go to Cuba, as you're saying, and study vulture diets, I mean, the capacity to, maybe this is another instance of Man for Our Times, the ability to sort of process input data and not lose your soul, like actually kind of care about multiple things and still be a human being.
1: That's remarkable. Yeah. um, You know, you mentioned Churchill earlier and the the line he likes so much, a change is as good as a rest, is a very Rooseveltian thing. It's like he was able to access different parts of his brain at different times. I have a piece in there. You know, what I did was somewhat of a nod to Edmund Morris, but also in my own way as a creative writer, I wrote those interludes kind of in third person as as sort of Roosevelt fiction. And the one I like a lot is when he's out watching Elk and he's in the middle of a campaign tour, the first whistle stop ever in, in 1903, and he's crossing the country in a train and he gets to Yellowstone, and he just takes a break. He says, I'm going off. I'm leaving the Secret Service behind. I'm leaving the press behind. And he spends one day just looking and studying at this, these elk herds. And he's not thinking about foreign policy. You know, Maybe it flashed through his mind. But he was very good at getting absorbed. And I say at one point, maybe this is his best self, that self that's you know being there so fully uh, with these animals. But at the same time, what you say about progressivism, I mean, he didn't create progressivism. He rode the tide of it, but his force of personality allowed so many things, as I say, that anticipate FDR uh, to start moving, you know, in terms of women's rights, in terms of workers' rights, in terms of the work week and labor and antitrust law. And it's just so many things that, you know, we could have gone in a different direction. And it was partly him personally, but it was partly this rising sense of progressivism. That right about then starts to shift. You mentioned Wilson, the shift from that being a Republican bread and butter to to Democrat, which obviously comes true with his distant cousin, you know, becomes president uh, twenty years later. So it's it's pretty fascinating. It's a fascinating time too, and of course uh, we even get to have, have the the beginnings of the great influenza there too to bring it even more relevant. I mean, it's, I just feel like, let's just take him, how he would respond to the pandemic. Boom. He's going to listen to the science. Boom. He's going to take the scientist, you know, uh, uh, point of view and articulate it so that people get what they're saying. And then he's going to be tough. You know, it's going to, he's going to say, this is the course. And he did that so frequently. And the other thing he would do that with would be climate. Um, A guy who took on the railroads, the trusts, would take on the fossil fuel industries also. So that's where there are plenty of flaws. But boy, we could use we could use that kind of uh, leadership, that vigorous um, ability to articulate. Because there, there's a line I say in there about how he didn't, when he was fighting for these environmental things, he didn't just have to argue with Congress. He had to create the arena that it was being fought in because no one knew what the hell, why would you put something aside? Why wouldn't you use something? Well, he had to, he had to explain to us, he had to lead us and explain to us why this was worth fighting for. Um, and, and I say at the end of the book that his story about the natural world uh, was a flawed story. But it was a good story and it lasted us a century or so. And now it's up to us to revise it. And that's why I think Bears Ears is so important. It gives us a new way, a more inclusive way to think about the, the story of, of nature in this country. So, you know, he did his job. He got us to this point, And now it's it's up to us to kind of take
0: it from here. It's interesting because for a guy who had so much success from so much limitation, right, he has real political failures, at the end, toward the end of his political career, right? Yeah. I mean, he yeah. loses the presidential election. He kind of, I mean, he is kind of somebody that, that his, you know, sheer personal power and force can't seem to turn the tide anymore. And then goes on a tour of the Amazon and dies. I mean, it's just it's tragically, I'm sitting here thinking about this is tragically befitting. I mean, it's weird that, like, after he kind of, his star kind of starts falling. He goes to South America. It's such such an interesting, ironic, but again, poetically beautiful kind of arc to the
1: story. He couldn't, he didn't have an off switch. And so, you know, there was a lot of talk about retiring to Sagamore Hill and rocking in his rocking chair, but he didn't, you know, he went to the Amazon. He also uh, toured the West. He went to Africa. Well, Africa was after the presidency, but, you know, the guy just um, wasn't going to do deep breathing exercises and sit on the front porch. It just wasn't going to happen. And, and then of course things get more tragic as he kind of gets so aggressive about the first world war and pushes his you know children to be on the front lines and to you know, be manly like him. And, there, and of course that ends you know, tragically. And, um, and so there's a real darkness there at the end for sure. And as somebody who just had his 59th birthday, um, that last year from when Roosevelt turned 59 to when he dies at 60 he's said he's starting to be a pretty old man uh, all of a sudden after being so full of energy and fire so it's it's a, it's
0: sobering that, that ending well david i hope that you live a lot longer than roosevelt <laughs> if for no other reason and i hope i I and my listeners can keep reading your work and I am looking forward to see what else you're writing. And, um, thanks for writing your most recent book. It's, it's a great read. I'd encourage all my listeners to, to buy it. It's well worth reading. So thanks for writing it. And thanks for taking some time to talk with me about it on the podcast.
1: Thank you, Scott. This has been great. As I mentioned earlier, this is um, the beginning of kind of my book push. And, uh, I really have appreciated such a thoughtful, um, discussion about the
0: book so thank you pleasure is all mine thank you thanks for listening to this episode of give and take if you like what you've heard here please do a few things for me go share about this episode in iTunes write a review give it a rating share the love and goodness or go on social media share a link to the episode on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram please pass along the love and goodness if you've experienced it here thanks again Thanks again for listening to this episode of Give and Take. And until next time, friends, fare thee well.